welcome to The People's Project Live, the first time we've done this show with a live audience. So not only are you watching with your cats and dogs and family around on the couch, you are here with my special guests, 40 of us in the room today. Say hello to my friends. Thank you for being here, everyone. A round of applause for you. Yes. Yes. It's nerve-wracking there, seeing how the sausage is being made. Today we're joined by two special guests who have been on the show multiple times, and yet they still ask me questions. What are they going to ask me, Matt? I'm nervous. It's It's mainly David. Oh, yeah. This is Ryan Smith from the Liberal Party, member for Warrandyte. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. You have a million ministries in your uh, resume. We'll talk about that in a minute. I always appreciate you being on the show. David Limbrick, the uh, opposition leader of Victoria for the past couple of years. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I called you the opposition leader. Yeah. You said that's mean. Why is that mean? He was an opposition leader. uh, Well... You're, you mean were, to the Liberal Party, not mean to me. In it's the very ter- kind of you to say that In to the me. Tony Abbott sense, you actually I don't care what the issue was, you actually took it to the government. Mm. And I think if the government was doing everything I wanted, I would still want a strong opposition to come and sharpen my preferred government. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, it's dangerous when you've got a government that people aren't fighting against yes. for one way, even, even if you supported them. And Luke Donnellan, Labor Minister to Daniel Andrews, who interviewed him recently, said the exact same thing on our couch. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we go on to do an ad, this is handmade boxes by us, made by me and my daughter Coco. That's right. She's so cute. She ma- helped me make these um, matte black boxes. They have a USB inside. It's a time capsule with 30 of our most important conversations, totally uh, what do you call it? Evergreen conversations. It doesn't matter who won the election. Uh, these are a very nice box gifted by you. You can get that at teamhuman.au. Oh, gentlemen, how are we feeling? Great. You ready to be roasted? Yep. Do you notice a difference in my demeanor when the camera turns on? Yep. Every, oh, you, they, they notice as well. Do you think <laughs> I'm nicer when the camera's off? Uh, that's a subjective term, but you're okay, you're okay. Because I've been told I'm a soft interviewer. All right, today, everyone, we need to talk about uh, the left move of Victoria, and then we can slam the Liberals for a moment, and then speed cameras. I want to tell you why speed cameras are so evil, or maybe they're not, maybe they're awesome. And then finally, uh, guilt-free electricity and renewables. And uh, This is why people watch Discernible, it's all about renewables and climate change. Let's get started. Gentlemen, the Victoria election is over. Yep. Happy days. I'm glad it's over. And the big winners are the left. That's why this segment is about keep left in Victoria. The Greens picked up a number of seats. Surprise, surprise. The Victorian Socialists gained a number of seats. So why don't we go through some... What? Well, the Victorian Socialists didn't. Sorry. Sorry. They picked up a lot of vote. Sorry. They, they did, yeah. Picked up a surprising large amount of vote. Legalised Cannabis picked up two seats. Uh, but let's go through, I would like to go through the seats, then the primary vote, and then the upper house. So first of all, seats. Daniel Andrews won 55 seats last election. He won 56 this time despite a crashed, crashed, despite a, a, a primary, lower primary. How is that representative? Well, it, it is interesting because it's, it, I guess it's similarly to the similar to the federal election where the both major parties, you know, the primary votes in the 30s. It's not huge. Um, I think we've got a lot of work to do in educating people about how preferences flow. Um, the Greens are simply a vote machine for the Labor Party, and I think that's something we need to make more of going forward to make sure that the people voting Green understand that the Greens are no longer the Bob Brown Green environmentalists but they're a different social justice party now. I think that's something we need to talk about a lot in the next four years. 
Um, but yeah, as far as being representative, yeah, I, I would agree in some terms, but I think both major parties obviously um, are suffering from a lack of trust from the electorate, and we've got to do some work to, certainly from our point of view, do some work to change that. What about this? Dan, it was a Dan slide, the media called it, and when he won 55 seats, now he's won 56. You guys really pooed the bed, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I, I think the, the evidence is there for all to see that we didn't do well. Um, there's some takeouts. I mean, it's been, we've been re referred to as Labor light at times, but I think that we trod a very, I say this, I'm not blind to the outcomes of the election. I'll make that clear. But we trod a fine line in terms of policy in that we managed to beat the Teals in the inner city, which was everyone, you know, when I say everyone, you know, the, the mainstream media commentators said we were going to get wiped out in, in uh, Caulfield and Hawthorne queue. Yep. Um, so you're talking about Jess Wilson yep. got up, David Southwick got up, yep. Newbury kept his seat. Yep, and um, John we had a teal in, in uh, Mornington as well, mm -hmm. um, which was a very close run thing. I think about 9.30, the teal candidate in Mornington was celebrating and two hours later, not so much. Mm -hmm. so, um, just, so, so pause on teals though. Why, what, when you say the, te the teals got up strong in federal against the Liberals, yes. but didn't in state. Does that be because the money wasn't there? Well, that's certainly one thing because we have the donation caps here in Victoria that limited the amount of money that could be spent or donated to the Teals. Unless you're in Labor or Liberal, you both have outs. Yeah, and they also ran against essentially opposition members of the opposition. It's hard to run a narrative that we've got to get rid of these guys because they have done nothing for eight years. You know, so you know we trod that line where we beat the Teals in the inner seats, but we also had you know, massive double-digit swings in some of the seats in the West and the North. I mean, Mill Park is now more marginal than Ringwood is for, for the Labor Party. So, you know, we had, I think, a 14% swing in Mill Park. Yeah. Um, so swings like that showed us that we were clearly talking to people about, and I, I spent a lot of time, for those that don't know, you know, I was in the West a lot this year. I went over to the Western suburbs at least once or twice a week, um, helping candidates out there, meeting people, talking to faith communities. And there is... There was a real narrative coming back to me that they didn't, that the faith communities in particular didn't believe in what Andrews has been peddling in terms of um, gender reassignment and we're going to teach your kids at school certain things um, that they don't agree with. And there was also very much a narrative from second and third generation migrants who said, you know, we have voted Labor for a long time in my family, but looking around, why? What are we getting out of this? So they were questioning, and what, what came back to me was, I remember this guy said to me, you know, we're not, my family is not voting for Labor, but you never talk to us. And that was a real wake-up call that, you know, we, we have taken for a long time for granted that Labor wins those seats. Right. And um, we've also taken for granted that we can't win them. And all that's required is a conversation, and which we started to have. And, you know, I'm certainly not going to take credit for double-digit swings in the West because I went out there a few times, but... Um, they are open to having a conversation with the Liberal Party about our family values and our themes of aspiration, which is a core value of our party. Um, so there's, you know, as far as being Labor light, I don't think we would have made the gains in those seats, in those growth corridors, um, in the southeast, the north and the west, if we were Labor light. I see what you're saying. Uh, just a quick side question. With the donation caps, there is, in the legislation, Labor can get their money from the union movement, no cap. You guys, there's a little company, a shelf company, I assume. I, don't, I read yeah. it, but I don't know what it so, is. Um, Who's putting money into the libs on that little company? So the, what are the um, associated entities? So you, mm. the, the legislation allows for any party to have one associated entity. Any, so that they can have one? Yeah, yeah, you can have an associated entity. I thought it was only Liberal and Labor. No. 
Um, and that associated entity can give you as much as they want. Oh. But the, am I correct or well, not entirely? Yes, yes, yes but no, um, the, the Liberal and Labor Party um, got in so that uh, existing associated entities were grandfathered. If we wanted to set yes, up a new true. associated entity, they would be subject to the donation caps as well and it would be of no real benefit to a minor party. Yep. But for the major parties, they already had those entities with large sums of money in it. And so, so put them at a major benefit. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And For so us, it would be no benefit because they would be subject to the donation caps as right, well. Okay. Right. And you comment on the unions allowed to. They are not donations, Matthew. They are Membership. affiliation fees. Well, it's a different thing entirely. Yeah, I know, right. Let's go to the primary vote. So the primary vote, and that was what people don't understand. Yes, Daniel Andrews won the election in a big, big way, all right? So stop yelling at us. Of course he did. But... Not everyone's voting for Daniel Andrews. So if you look at the primary vote, everyone, we've got 37% uh, of people voted for Labor in Victoria, 296 for Liberal, and then we'll add in the Nationals for the Coalition, which is 4.8. So we have 30, so 29.6 plus 4.8 is 34-ish. So you've got 37% of people voted for Labor, 34% voted for Liberal, and then the rest voted for other, so all these other smaller parties. And what really comes down to only about 100,000 vote difference between the Coalition and Labor. So 1.34 million for Labor and then 1.23-ish for uh, the Coalition. Yes, you're right. Only about 100,000 votes. That's about how many people who have left the state. Mm. That's right. And they weren't, as you said earlier, they so probably weren't, weren't voting for, for Labor. Uh, now, I raise this because when you walk out there, if, if you've been watching to some of you, you would have heard this. When you walk out there, it's easy to think everybody loves Daniel Andrews. Yes, he won the election, but that's not true that everyone loves Daniel Andrews. If you meet 10 people on Ringwood in the street, uh, on the street in Ringwood, uh, 3.7 of them voted for Daniel, but 3.4 voted for Liberal. You're almost equally as likely to run into a Matt Guy voter as a Daniel Andrews voter. You understand what I'm saying? So please just stop feeling like you're in a battle in a war zone when you go outside and everyone hates you and your freedom-loving guy. It's not the case. Uh, primary votes on other parties is what I want to talk to you about, David. Mm. You got uh, not just Lib Dems, but overall the, the other vote went up massively. Yeah, mainly so, left-wing type stuff, but still. Yeah. So look, I think um, looking at the um, the lower house vote is probably not great for this because many of these minor parties didn't run in many lower house seats. So we'll, like we'll get we to the upper house yeah. soon. Yep. Yeah. So we didn't we didn't run in a lot of uh, lower house seats. So. I wouldn't read a lot into that, but certainly there was, um, you know, a decline in both of the major parties' votes, and much of that went to minor parties such as the Liberal Democrats and Family First and these other ones. Uh, I, I actually think that's the the big story. Like, um, there's a lot of people that are abandoning the major parties for various reasons, um, and many of them are going to the Greens, although not as many as you might think. Uh, you know, it's not even a 1% increase, according to this, for the Greens in the lower house. And they did run everywhere, I think, in the lower house. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of people going to newer parties. Um, that's having some positive effects and some problematic effects. There's some fracturing of votes. Um, yeah, you see these parties like Family First taking off and then you can look in each seat, you can <coughs> see where Labor might have dropped three and then plus three on Family First or so on. You can see them bleeding to the to the small parties, but it's interesting that uh, the the some of the parties that got a lot of media got almost nothing. 
you know, angry Victorians and Transport Matters and these sort of people, even legalised cannabis. And yet, we'll talk about Upper House and legalised cannabis did really well, scoring two seats. Mm. Overall, I'm getting to the Anka Sahin argument of the, the real lack of representativeness. We have, we have so few people voting for people who are getting seats in the Upper and the Lower House. Well, look, I think in the lower house, you know, we have a preferential system, right? So a lot of these people who voted family first, for example, they probably would have, I guess, preferenced the Liberal Party. So they've said, look, I'm expressing my preference for a party that has a focus on uh, religious values, but ultimately um, I'm going to support a major party. So those those votes don't just go out here and disappear, especially in the lower house, because they have to number every box and they have to express a preference eventually on which major party they want. So I wouldn't see it. I, what I would say is that a lot of these votes that have gone away to these other parties, they're sending a message to the late, to the major parties that um, we're not happy with your performance. It might not actually affect the election outcome that much because the preferences will go back to them. But they're certainly trying to send them some sort of message mm. that, you know, we're not happy with whatever you're doing and um, we're going to express that uh, unhappiness through but voting for one of these other parties. But ultimately, with preferences, people are making a choice between Liberal and Labor. Oh, eventually, day, yeah. yeah. Eventually, they have to. Although I would say that there are still a lot of people who don't get how the preference flows work. Mm. And it was funny, I was, I was scrutinizing in Morwell, and it makes you laugh with some tickets. You know, you've got first preference Freedom Party, second preference Greens. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Do you look at these people's policies? What do you, what do you, you know, you just wonder sometimes when you look at these things. What's the mind? Yeah, we got similar feedback when yeah. people were scrutineering, and it's like, um, although the feedback that I did get was that there was on the for the upper house below the line votes, there was a lot more discipline for left voters. Now, absolutely, yeah, that right. would, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. rather than people on, you know, who are either libertarian or right leaning or whatever. Um, and, you know, that is probably something that we need to learn from in that they've probably done a better job of educating their supporters and uh, we maybe need to do that, a better job of that too. Okay. Uh, who voted, so for the upper house, who voted above the line? Who voted below the line? Everyone, voted in, everyone in this room voted below the line. Now, uh, who do you think, how many people do you think voted below the line? Do you think it's 50% of people? 20%. Do you know the answer? I, I know the answer. Oh, yeah. Depends would, on the party. I would say it was very low, yeah. Yeah, it varied between parties, but overall, Liberals were the worst. I think they're 93% above vote the line. They're all around 90% and then into the 80s. Do you know the party with the best discipline below the line vote actually ordered their preferences? Yeah, Fiona Patton's Reason Party. So there's a lot to learn there. Anyway, let's go to the upper house, gentlemen. Uh, upper house, upper house. Here we go. All right, so intriguing that 50% of the upper house have changed. 50% of the people there are returning. 50% of the people are new to, to the gig. That's a, that's a big, uh, fresh turnover of, yeah, of it people. Is. It is, yeah. There's, uh, not many crossbenchers came back. There was, um, yeah, I was one of the very few that was lucky enough to come back. But yeah. Tim Quilty gone, Tr Transport Matters gone, Fiona Patton gone, thank God. Uh, with, with the um, Liberals, you guys picked up, what, two pl plus two seats, Labor lost three, Greens picked up three, big winners there. Now, Legalised Cannabis picked up two. Mm. And, and just uh, out of the ones that we won, half of ours are new. New yeah. people as well, yeah. yeah. What do you make of this, this transition? So we might get rid of a Bernie Finn, but we've now got a Maura Deeming and a Renee Heath in terms of that, and, and, and a uh, Somurek. 
So what I'm trying to measure is, is the state going left? Because then we're also electing like a Somirek on traditional family values and his Turkish uh, Muslim values. Yeah, I mean, when you look at, um, you know, two, two people from Justice Party out, but one, one, one nation in. Yeah, one uh, nation. Patton out. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I, I don't think people, um, certainly I don't think many of the people that voted above the line would really know too much about the values of these different parties. I think that's that's the first thing. I, I, look, as I said, I, st I still think there is a lot, a lot of education that needs to be done around helping people understand how preferences work and the preference flows. And, you know, there's some issue about Glenn Drury. I mean, I don't... Did you see the leaks? The what? The leaks. A the, few, I video? published some. Yeah, there's a yeah. recording in a few Oh, videos. yeah, I saw that, yeah. I mean, he's a bit of an ass. He's saying, yeah. oh, I've run the show. Yeah, it yeah, yeah. might not all be true, but certainly there's some dodginess going on there. Yeah, so there's, that, that, that raised the profile of what preferences flows do yes. and how they work. But again, you know, if you're a family in Cranburn, you're probably not looking at that. I no. Mean, it'd go over your head yes. because you don't care enough. It's a bit of a scandal, though, if any, even half of what he says is true, that he's selling seats in Parliament. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't agree with it, but... I mean, we've said the group voting ticket, if, if we got in, would be gone. Do you support getting rid of the GVT? Even yeah, I've, said, I've said publicly that we support getting rid of it, just not getting rid of it without some sort of structural change, because yep. just getting rid of the group voting ticket and leaving the regions as they are is effectively handing over balance of power to the Greens permanently. Um, Why is that? How does that work? Because the regions only have uh, five members per region, and so you'll end up with, you know, this whatever it is, 25% or whatever that didn't vote for Liberal, Labor, or the Greens will end up uh, being unrepresented, so they'll be disenfranchised, and that's sort of what happened in federal parliament. But we would support um, changes to the system, similar to like what they've got in New South Wales, which yeah. is a highly proportional system, or Western Australia, okay. um, which don't use group voting tickets, they, but they have a single region in New South Wales. So they say, right, we have a single region, we have uh, 40 seats uh, up for election at each, I think it's 40 from memory, at each election they do half, half, um, yep. half elections and uh, they get representation depending on what their support is across the state. So we'd, we'd support that sort of system. My, my issue with some of these, like the Cannabis Party and I know Transport Matters aren't there anymore, is that they don't have a core set of values. Like yeah. the Lib Dems do, you know, we do, Labor does, Greens do. So much of what happens in the parliament that's not to do with their issue, it just becomes a transaction. And the Victorian public, you know, if something comes to our party or your party, David, you know, the public can have a broad idea of how we're going to react to it. But if you bring an education policy to Transport Matters Party... Transaction. What, it, what is their stance on that? Well, they don't have one. So yes. once you deal with their single issue, like legalised cannabis, how are they voting? How would the Australian uh, Victorian public um, ascertain how are they going to react? How's legalised cannabis going to react on the 99% of other things that come... Them. In, in fairness to some of these um, people in the last term that were in that position, yep. and, and I have the same criticism, like, you know, obviously we're both parties that have a founding philosophy and we try and um, base our views on how it fits with that philosophy. I, I would characterise them as sort of acting like independents in those cases, right? Like many of them did make an effort to tr try and, you know, talk to 
groups and try and make what they thought was the best decision. But of course, the person that voted for them in the first place would yes. have only voted for them on their issue, whatever that issue was. Um, you know, they many of them tried their best, but um, yeah, you don't really know what you're getting uh, outside of that core issue. And there's also very little policy work done. And I respect that you know some the parties are small; they can't. But if you're you know, if you're going to the polls and saying, you know, we've got Labor, we've got the Greens, we've got um, the Coalition, th there's a policy suite, which you mentioned before, you know, was quite substantial, our policy the suite. The Liberal one was out. very good. No Me one cared, but it was no, very good. No one cared, but, yeah. but many of the minor parties, you know, if you're saying vote for me for the next term, my question would be, well, what's your policy suite? What are you going to do for the roads? <coughs> what are you going to do for education? You know, curriculum issues, all these different things, and many of the minor parties just don't have positions on that stuff. We've argued over this before, I don't know who's right, but if I wanted, you, you're correct, but if I wanted a specific, if I'm a taxi driver, yep. and I wanted compensation for losing my, my plates, of course I'm going to vote Rod Bart in this cycle to get that one thing through, to hell with all the other stuff you just talked about. Or you can lobby a party that's actually got more clout and more members and more, yeah. you know, that's, and make them the, make them your representatives that actually are helping you, rather than just say, I'm not even talking to you, I'm going to talk to that one person. It's just that I've seen Fiona Patton get stuff through for her constituency and anti-medic yep. because they were transactional with the pandemic legislation. Yes. If they didn't have that balance of power, though, I wonder how compliant the government would have been to those wishes, though. Well, the legalised cannabis crew now will be very yes, happy true. because they'll be able to do the same thing. Uh, <clears throat> well, uh, one last thing I want to talk about these polls. Uh, Anomalies, anomalies. So huge informal vote. This is when you draw dicks on the paper, right? Well, that's what we got in the end. <laughs> Can't believe you went there. <laughs> or if you just accidentally filled it out wrong. It's not just dicks on the paper. Uh, you, I found out that you can draw a phallus on the paper as long as you still put the numbers. It still counts yeah, as a yeah, vote. Yeah, so yeah. you can still do graffiti. Uh, I long have thought, uh, someone said to me, they've long thought that the informal vote is a legitimate party. There's something there. There's a lot of people who are not doing, uh, who are not happy with the system. Mm, yeah. I think many, optional voting is where we need to go. Well, that's our party policy. We support optional voting. Um, many years ago, there was a party that was set up. Um, I don't know whether they actually got registered. It might have been a bit of a joke, but they called themselves the informal party and they said vote one informal. Um, that was how, do you, how do you do that? Well, you're not allowed. Well, they actually um, they brought in special laws to outlaw these. Oh, I think they were anarchists, and they were trying to get a good informal vote. I love it. And um, and uh, yeah, so they actually made laws. You're not allowed to encourage someone to vote informal. Really? Yeah, it's against the law. Well, at least at a federal level. I'm not sure at a state level, but yeah, you're not allowed okay. to encourage someone to vote informal. Which is why when you put out those, you know, some of the parties like the Teals put out the the you know their literature is all the boxes, but just one in theirs, yeah. and that is encouraging yeah. someone to vote informal because yes. you're not actually... Arguably, yeah. 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 Um, I, I mean, I think there's two things. I mean, I, I, I'm not as... I actually believe in um, mandatory voting, but I don't like the idea of mandatory preferencing. I think preferencing should be optional because I think that if you just hate six out of the seven names on the ballot paper, you shouldn't, have, you shouldn't be in a position to say, yeah. mine didn't get in, mm. I'll have one of the others. You might not like yeah. any of the others. So yeah. put the one you want. If you want right. a preference, preference, but if you don't, don't. We already have that in the upper house. Um, like with, if you vote below the line, you only have to vote for the first. What happens? Your vote extinguishes? After your vote exhausts. Oh. Yeah, it exhausts. So effectively, 
if no one that you voted for gets in, then you're vo you become disenfranchised, I suppose. But if you didn't want them to get in anyway, then that's your choice, I suppose. So. Okay, and the last anomaly I want to talk about is the donkey vote. So you scrutinied, and what did you see? Because the reports from oh. Mulgrave is that the donkey vote had a huge ticket was massive, sometimes yeah. almost 10%. So I think that's what, I guess that goes back to what I was saying a second ago. You've either got to educate people, like as a government and as the commission, you've got to educate people on how to vote properly. If you're going to demand that they, that they vote properly, you've got to educate them on how to do it and why they're doing it. But um, it's, it's, and that's why I think what I think, I think that if, if you don't have to preference then that solves that problem. Did you see a lot of donkey though? When oh, you're to be fair, I, I was on a second and third council. Okay. All the donkey right. ones were gone. Okay, uh, now uh, finally, I need to talk to you about the Liberals. So, so someone asked earlier, Ash asked earlier about Liberal light. Yep. Uh, Labor light, Labor yep, light. And I talked about that earlier, but yes. I, I don't think we did it on camera though. Yes, we did. Did we? Yes, because we were talking about the teals and being okay. middle of the road and still getting all that um, well, let, let northern me ask, and western suburban. Okay, well, let me ask about this. Where is the Liberal Party going to go? Because when Newbury uh, did, did the right thing for his seat and, and go more climate change and talk to Beck Judd, he did really well. Yep. Uh, and uh, Tasmania went left, did really well. And Liberals are in government there now. So surely the strategy for the Liberal Party is to not go, like Pauline Hanson says, you need to stand for something, move more towards the right. You should go left if you want to win electorally. I think a lot of the, I, I hear the narrative a lot that Liberals don't stand for anything. I, I know what I stand for. I stand for smaller government, less taxes. I stand for the family unit, however you define that as being the foundation for success for your family and children. I stand for a lot of things. I think we need to talk, as I was saying earlier, we need to talk to those um, growth areas more, the faith groups more, and tell them why our values align. So when people say you don't stand for anything, I, I get that's the perception. I don't know how I react in a broad sense, but in a micro sense, we need to get out and be talking to people more about this stuff. When I talk about, I mean, the reason why I joined the party back in 2003 is, is, was around that aspiration value. And when I talk about that to business people, you know, small business people and migrants and a whole range of people who are trying to do better, it resonates. And you and I have discussed this before, but that's, that's what we need to do. We need to actually tell people what our values are. But the medium by which to do that, that's, that's the hard part, because if it's not a 12-second TikTok, then half the population doesn't want to hear. Exactly. So, do, so do you it's need not, to maybe go... it's not the message, but it's the way we're delivering it. We've got to go yeah. into the 21st century so with how we deliver it. Yeah, when I say go left, maybe maybe I don't... Maybe oh, I'm trying to work my thoughts on I don't on think it. we need to go left. Maybe, maybe I'm not saying you need to go left on policy as much as you need to go left on style, yeah, messaging. Yeah, absolutely. Because the way Daniel Andrews talked, I was like infants. I was disgusted, but yes, it worked. It works, yes. And Chris Minns in New South Wales is doing the same thing, and I think that's going to work as so well. So it's not, that's why Andrews employs literally dozens and dozens and dozens of people in his social media unit. And we have, I mean, oppositions don't have much, and you know the minor parties have even less. But when we're, the opposition leader's office has, I don't know, 12 or 14 people in it. Yep. Um, one of them does social media. So it's very hard to combat, but we do need to find a way to combat it, whether it's you know raising more money and getting and outsourcing it, like it's what I did in my own electorate. I need a job. <laughs> I'm, I'm only like 20% kidding. No, I'll do this on the side. No, yeah, I, I legitimately need so a job. Committed there. Uh, so if anyone has a job for me, please send us an email to support at similar.io. Uh, before we go to some audience questions on this topic, just quick ones. Will it, would you, if Glenn Drury and GVT system is still in in the next election, is he worth paying again? Will you pay for him again? 
I don't know, probably not, but I don't know what the system's going to be and I don't think it'll be around, so... You think it'll be gone? No, I, I think it'll be gone. I think it'll be gone. I think Labor's going to get rid of it, for sure. Labor will get rid of it, but it benefits them. Yeah, I would no, be surprised at that, but... You would be surprised? Yeah, well, I don't know. We'll wait and see, but I think there's going to be an inquiry. There's always an inquiry into the election by the Electoral Matters Committee. Do you think it's been poisoned that you can't use him? Probably, yeah. See, I would disagree with that too. I personally think that's the case, but as we talked about earlier, the vast majority of Victorians don't care about it, don't know about it, aren't interested. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's poisoned because if it works, yeah. is there anyone not voting for you? Because, I mean, the, the majority of people who aren't aware of how it operates, it's not going to affect them whether it's there or not yeah. in terms of the way they vote. Mm. I don't know. That's just my view. Uh, question for you. Why were you snubbed so hard? So, so this is your qualifications, right? So minister for this, minister for that, shadow minister for this. I mean, wow. what wow. the... And not only that... Can't keep a job by the look of it. <laughs> <laughs> your experience is so high and you've been an actual minister in government. Uh, why have they suddenly not given you any jobs? Is it because you're a threat to John Pesuto? Uh, you've put me on the spot. Um, Look, I think I have something to offer the front bench, and I, I um, put myself forward as deputy leader. I, I was just a few votes short of being in a leadership role. Um, not getting a senior role was, um, I felt, a bit of a snub, to be frank. Um, I can't speculate on what John thought of me and what I could contribute, but I, I thought that I had something to offer, okay. that's for sure. All right, well, that's sad. I'm sorry to hear it. Yeah. Because a lot of, I saw Brad Bad and I saw many people were sort of staying in there and then it was odd that you got nothing. That was... Yeah, well, I, I certainly had a conversation with John, but I'll um, okay. leave it to you to see what the... Keep it private? How that was. Are there any questions <laughs> from the audience before we wrap up this beautiful topic? Uh, I think there is even a microphone going to come to you, so you end up on, on the recording. Uh, Annabelle will bring you a microphone. Sorry, I didn't mean to um, uh, hurt you. No, 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 no. It's politics. I've it been hurt by sad. far more okay. people, more professional right. at it than you. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh. It's on. It's on. It's on. Hello, sir. Really? Who's your question for? Uh, why did Tim get beaten for the Liberal Democrats and uh, David get it back? Why did Tim Quilty lose and you didn't? Is it because his GBTs were... Um, um, what do I call it? Deceptive and yours weren't. Well. Because a lot of the Freedom Party were having, the Freedom side people were having a go at the Liberal Dems because of your GBTs. Well, I would argue that it's not deceptive if you don't think that your preferences are going to get distributed because they only get distributed if you lose. So we were planning on winning, obviously. But um, I think in Northern Victoria, he didn't get very good preference flows um, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, the primary vote wasn't very good either in Northern Victoria. Um, it's unfortunate. I mean, we're going through that review process as a party at the moment, and we'll have learnings, I suppose. I don't want to preempt that process, but certainly, certainly, primary vote and preference flows were not um, as good as what we'd hoped. Who replaced him? Uh, well, there was two two cross benches beforehand. And there's two now. So Ricky, Ricky, uh, Pauline Hanson, Ricky Lee, um, Tyrrell, um, One Nation, yeah, one nation from One Nation, and then a national someone. Didn't they pop up? 
Yeah, there was a national there as well, and also the uh, animal justice is in Northern Victoria too, plus Labor and Liberal. Yeah. Okay, thank you. What was the other question right there? On the back. Yeah, while we're on the uh, voting, I guess it's more for the young kids, 16-year-olds, there's been a bit of talk about young kids voting. Uh, I know where I sit on it. Uh, I just want to see if whether you support it or you don't support it. If so, why? And if not, why not? Um, if they're paying taxes, are they paying taxes to a government that's spending their taxes? Should they be able to vote? Or if not, why not? So lowering from 18 to 16. I'd take the reverse approach on this. Um, I agree, no taxation without representation. We shouldn't be taxing them. Oh, look at you. <laughs> Such a liberal Democrat. Um, I, would, I wouldn't like to lower it. I think we're, we're and I guess I say this partly from um, my party hat on because we're not doing great with the lower demographic at the moment, so I wouldn't want to exacerbate that. Um, but yeah, I just don't see that there's that much engagement. And when we do talk about, you know, when we talk about young people, we often, even within our party, and I think we, in, generally in politics, we say, you know, young people are very concerned about climate change and this and that, and they're very activated. If you go, and I, I'm being very general here, so I don't want anyone to take offence, but if you go down to my son plays local footy, no one on that team cares less about climate change environment or even government. They just don't care. They have no interest at all. So, you know, there are a group, there, there are, there's a young demographic that are activists and care, and there's another group that just don't. And I think lowering the age is just gonna make that, you know, there's just bringing in a whole bunch of other people who largely are not on the wavelength of having the ability to have an informed vote. Ability's probably not the right word, the, the wherewithal to have an informed vote. They're just not interested. My, my son's 17, he's grown up in politics. He could not care less. There's a topic. confounding factor, though, because lowering the age in a mandatory system would cause problems, but lowering the age in an optional system wouldn't cause the same problems. Sorry. Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, we don't, I don't think we have a strict policy on this, but I, I agree, I wouldn't support um, lowering the age, really because, you know, we've, whether or not, whether or not it's right, it, we've set an arbitrary line in the sand that when you're 18, you're an adult, right? And all of those responsibilities of being an adult come to you. Now you can argue that there's kids that are younger that are more responsible and maybe people that are older that are not as responsible but you know as a society we've drawn that line in the sand at 18 you can buy a drink you can drive a car and you can vote right. Um, I think that changing that line depending on the activity uh, is a bit weird. Yeah. You, I get the impression you would like to see it lowered is that right? I've been on the, I'm on the fence on it. Um, I, I suppose I sit more to one side that I don't because I see your same point where you say that um, can be persuaded by the climate change, that yep, yep. sort of lefty style, but it's being pushed through schools. Um, but in the same token, I see the other side of the argument as well. And like, like Dave said about the not being adult to make a decision, with, you know, there's other things where kids at the moment uh, aren't making decisions, you know, the gender reassignment, etc., and they're still capable of that. So, you know, where does the line drawn in a lot of things? But that's just, yeah. You know, if you actually, no, good. Thank you. if you actually asked them, if you polled the 16 and 17 year olds, I suspect Ryan is right in that if you polled them and said something inaccurate, which is, should you have the ability to vote? You might be able to get them to say yes, but that's not the reality. The reality is, should the law force it that you must vote? 
I think every 16 to 70 would be like, stuff that. Even I, the Greens I don't, don't make support that, though. Even the Greens, their policy, I think, is uh, voluntary for under-18s. Yeah, see, oh, yeah. that's how they'll win it. But if you, sure. if you force them, I don't think they want to do it. Mm. Did we have one more question before we move on? No. Yes. Yes, we did. Hi, I've got more of an observation that I would like to get your comments on. So I live quite far east, just out of Belgrave, and I noticed during the state election absolutely no signage for any of the parties. And I just thought that was really weird. There was a lot during federal. I put one up for you, David, or oh, Lib Dems. Um, but yeah, didn't see anything. What about state. for like Ian Cook and uh, Pesudo for Liberals? So I was, um, God, I had Craig, what's his name? I'm having, a, I'm having a blank now that I'm on the spot. No, they weren't in my, that's not in my Oh, you're just um, east area. of that, okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm eastern, um, but absolutely nothing. I had Craig Cole, sorry. So he's sort of more aligned to some of the freedom kind of movement, but absolutely nothing at the main roundabout compared to federal, which well, is money, oh, money. I think cash. it's the donation yeah, why laws. Partly is... the, the donation laws mean that you haven't got enough money to do all the things you want to do. Okay. But it was interesting. I, I didn't put much signage up in 2018. I had probably 20 names on a database and I put them up and then I put on social media, anyone else want to help? And I got another 50 or 60. So I've never had so much, so, so many signs up in my life, in my electorate, of people who have never put a sign up in their life ever, coming to me through social media and saying, yes, I'll do it, I'll do it. This I'll election. This election, yeah. I just wondered, was it a reflection of care factor? Oh, I, not, I, think I didn't think about of it from money, a budget. Some of it's money, because this yep. is the first election we've had since the donation laws were in place, so there's okay. significantly less around. Yeah. Yep. And for minor parties especially, like we have to focus yep. our resources and we just can't spread all over the state. We don't have the resources to do that. So we focused on uh, certain areas. Uh, in my area, we actually did put up heaps of like hundreds and hundreds of call flutes all over the place. And we had billboards and ads at 7-Eleven. Like we went nuts in Southeast Metro. And, um, but we can't afford to do that all over the state. And certainly the donation laws would have prevented us from doing that, even if we could have raised the money. I was um, driving up in queue, like there was, you know, 20 Jess Wilson and 20 of a teal opponent. And it was just like, they, there was a lot of signage in queue, that's for sure. We, uh, I'm sad to say, uh, have, I think, well, my worst fears have been confirmed that we seem to like being policed. Can we, can we, can we take that summary away from this election that there is a left swing? I feel like there's a bit of a left uh, progressiveness expressing itself through uh, these uh, results. I think what I take away is there is a growing apathy. Apathy more than a left. Yeah. What about the high Victorian socialist vote, which was scarily high? I just, I just think, you know, they're not interested in the major parties. They're not interested in, you know, they'll... Uh, yeah, I, I just think people just are very disengaged from politics. They're really over it. Do you feel the left swing? In certain areas. Like you mentioned, the, you've mentioned the socialist vote a number of times. If you look at where that is, it's very focused. Yeah, it is. It's like in South East, it was very low. Yeah, but even Colac, Richard Ridden, Conservative, yeah, yeah. the coastal towns, the Greens were threatening him. Yes, so as, as yeah. talking, So as places develop, I think this happens very, all over the world. It's very fragmented. Like, I think generalising statewide is um, difficult to do. Like, certainly, if you look at, you know, southeast metro and north metro, they're like different planets, uh, electorally. Like, okay. southeast metro, the Greens vote was very low. Um, socialist vote was almost non-existent. There's a lot of um, Labor support still. But, but a lot of that other stuff is gone. And North North Metro, you know, socialist stronghold. Um, right, yeah. yeah. But North Metro and West Metro, you know, some pretty significant swings to centre-right. That's true yeah. as well, yes, away from the Labor Party. All right, let's poll the audience then. Uh, 
Is the state of Victoria moving left? All right, the state of Victoria is not moving left, as per what they were saying. Oh, we have one, two votes, okay. I win. It's the only poll I'll ever win. <laughs> Let's talk about the psychology of speed cameras because I think there is a general tendency towards this kind of big government approach. I yes, speed cameras because nothing says safety like a big fine in the mail. I have stories to tell, but I will put that aside, my issues with speed cameras. Uh, what do we think of speed cameras, people? Are they saving lives or are they... <laughs> Wow, shouldn't get the question out. They hate them. They're coming for your money. Is that what we think they are? Yeah. Just money. Okay. Yeah. You don't. No other reason. I'm wondering if it's Why just a general want sense to of. Why die? Yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering if it's just a general sense of control, like a, a nanny state type of thing. I think I'm not opposed to speed cameras per se. I'm opposed to the very limited error of mar margin of error that they give you. They're eight plus two now, aren't they? Yeah, but I, I just, I mean, I- Is that it? Eight, eight Ks plus two for the speedo, so it's 10. No. Is that right? No, That's no, what a superintendent no. told me. 3%. 3%, yeah. Well, I'll tell you a story about that in a moment. But I think, I mean, for mine, I mean, we don't want people driving at ridiculous speeds because it is dangerous and I don't want someone driving 120 into my family. So, they serve a purpose, but as I said, I, I have issues. They're with not their... attacking people doing 120 in a 40 zone. They're attacking no, people doing right. 48 in a 40 zone. So I think there needs to be an enforcement, but I am issue, have issue with the margin of error that they give you. Okay, well, speed cameras have a bright future ahead of them because uh, we continually lower the speed limits. Travelling at 40 kilometres an hour, for some, it feels like a slow crawl. Well, we might as well not have a car. Like, Cyclists can ride about 30k, so we, we're going, what, 10k faster than a push bike? Too slow. Too slow. Would they be the car at 40 kilometres? It's impossible. Pasco Vale residents, among many, fed up. Derby Street going from 60 to 50 and now down to a 40 zone. We really don't have a choice, otherwise we'll get booked <laughs> and a fine. Derby Street is one of 27 new permanent 40 kilometre per hour zones approved this year, taking the state's total to 30,500, while there are 32,500 roads with 60 kilometre per hour speed limits in place. An application is reviewed on a case-by-case -case basis. This changes are all about making sure that our network is safe and reliable. So it's all about making sure it's safe, David. As you said, uh, so Derby Street in Pasco Vale, which is in the north of Melbourne, has had a street there, uh, Derby Street, has gone from 60 down to 50, now gone down to 40. And in the entirety of Victoria, we have roughly the same number of permanent 40 zones as 60 zones. So 30,000 permanent 40 zones and 32,060 zones. Uh, this is a trend, gentlemen. It's not like the speed limits go back up. I, there's a fundamental thing here, and this is not just in speed limits, this is in many areas of the public service. It's about um, risk tolerances, right? Because what we're, what we're doing when we set a speed limit, it's not like there's some magic correct number of what the speed there limit is should be. There is zero. Well, zero, yes. If, if you want, like, that's, the, that's what true. the TAC says, towards zero. Well, we can make it zero tomorrow. We make the speed limit 10 kilometres an hour. And, you know, there might, that'd be pretty close to zero, right? But what we're really doing is we're trading off uh, convenience and living our lives and our time spent in the car waiting for things versus safety, and that line is arbitrary. Now, the problem is when you hand that over to bureaucrats, 
they never want more risk, right? No, they will never, never push for more risk. And so they will take less and less and less and less risk. And that means speed limits are always going down. Always. Government needs to stand up to the bureaucrats and say, well, people want convenience and this sort of thing. Uh, and we saw this during the, the pandemic. Like, um, you know, we had crazy restrictions to lower risk to as low as possible mm -hmm. because no one was brave enough to say, well, in a, in a free society, um, people have to accept some sort of risk in order to live their life. And this is the problem that we've got with speed limits, I think. We need to have that conversation. I mean, our, our party um, a few years ago um, was actually Senator Lionhelm when, when he was in. Um, there was an experiment uh, done overseas and um, he proposed this for our party as a policy. You can actually set uh, speed limits by, if you take away the, the signs off a stretch of road for a period of time, most people, if there's no speed limit, they will drive at what they feel is a comfortable and safe speed, right? You're not going to drive, you'll get a few people that will drive crazy. Yeah. And then what the idea was is you monitor the speed limits and then you just take the 80th percentile of that and set that as a speed limit because that's what 80% of the people feel is a safe yes. and comfortable speed. And they've you know, democratically chosen that that's the risk tolerance that they're willing to take. I reckon that's a great thing to do. And I'd love, I'd love us to set speed limits like that, take it away from the bureaucrats, give it back to the people. Um, but the speed limits and the cameras, they're separate issues, but they also interact, oh, right? They interact. They interact, the of course. Going on there. Like anyone that tries to drive at 30 kilometers an hour like it is really hard to drive at 30, 30 or 40 kilometers 40, an hour yeah. even. Um, there's an area near, near my house, not too far away from my house, and it's a 40 it's on Warrigal Road, right? And it's, it's notorious for being the highest revenue raising speed camera in the state. I think it's like over $10 million a year in revenue from this one camera. It's a 40 kilometer an hour zone. Um, but the traffic speeds up and slows down and it's very hard for you to keep your eyes on the traffic Correct. ahead That's right. and the speedo at the same time. Exactly. I actually feel it's quite dangerous. dangerous. I think it would be much safer if, you know, I'm not a crazy driver. I drive pretty safe, I reckon. It'd be much safer just watching the car in front of me and trying to keep my distance and travel at a safe speed rather than constantly looking at the speedo worrying that the camera's going to flash. So, you know, I'm not convinced that it's a great, great no, thing to do. I, look, it's incumbent on government to tell us what problem they're trying to fix. They do tell us. They do. So when this well, lowering, they said it's because of the risk to... But death. also show us that there is a problem. And the fact of the matter is there isn't more, um, more problems with a 50k an hour zone than a 30k hour zone. Like, would, there's just not... Well, they said it was. Well, so I, in I this just report, don't think that's, that's actually feasible. I don't think that's right. Okay, well, just and to I be fair to Most them, people believe it. I didn't show the full thing because of time, but they talk about the risk of death being hit at uh, 50 versus 40. Yes. And it's a significant reduction. It's like 60% damage to a pedestrian versus 40%. Getting hit at 10 kilometres is also of course, as well. Of course. Yeah. That, I mean, there's more, you know, fix a road. How about that as a mm, safety mm. issue? There's literally yeah. potholes in, in, you know, we used to talk about potholes throughout Western Victoria and out in the, in the regional areas, but in my electorate, in metropolitan, there's now potholes coming up. Fix a road. Let's worry about this as a secondary issue. If you mm. want to be safe, having cars go off the road with burst tyres is probably, to me, sounds like a bigger danger to your safety than anything else. Uh, well, you're uh, correct in that bureaucrats, they're incentivised to make things ever safer. And in, in a way, well, politicians are as well. They have narrow KPIs as well. Like, 
you know, they're, they're looking at things through a one-dimensional lens. Like, all they're looking at in this is they're saying, well, what's the number of accidents and people dying and yeah. this sort of thing? But they're not looking at the, that the consequences of reducing the speed limits. And, you know, they did this through the pandemic as well. They just focused on transmission of cases. But when you, when you, when you have to drive slower, especially when on long stretches of road, you're taking away um, part of people's lives because it's slower for them to get to places. And, these sort, and you're, you're making uh, transport more expensive, which has an effect, you know, through distribution and everything throughout the entire economy. There's second order effects that are happening that I don't think they're taking into account. And they're just looking at this one dimensional thing and they're always gonna come up with the same answer, um, dial it down. You know, the, their, their campaign slogan is towards zero, right? Like zero risk. Like what sort of world is zero risk? Like, And plus, well, so how do we feel about the New South Wales model of actually, put, if it's about safety, of putting warning signs that speak Oh, we're going to talk about science. Uh, my first career, failed career, was to be a pilot. And you'll be pleased to know that your friendly pilot at the front pointy end of the plane does not manage risk like this. This is what we call risk mitigation or risk reduction. That's not how pilots think. They think of risk management. You never see a plane flying around at you know, five kilometers per hour. So <laughs> when, when you think about plane accidents and aviation, it's, it's about training. It's about Swiss cheese model. Do you know the Swiss cheese model of risk management? If you, if you align layers of Swiss cheese up, they all have holes in them, but the holes don't overlap. So as long as you have enough layers of Swiss cheese, you never get a direct path right through all the cheese to cause an accident at the end. They're not thinking like that. Mm. Potholes, driver mm. training, car quality, education, yeah, car technology, barriers. The only thing that seems to make uh, speed limits go up is political action. Let me prove it to you. In Liverpool, where I grew up, in Sydney, southwest Sydney, Liverpool Council has recently claimed victory against the state of New South Wales for a 30 kilometre per hour limit that was imposed on them in their CBD. Let me tell you about it. Oh, Liverpool Council, they had a two-year battle with New South Wales government to remove their 30k speed limit. Do you know why this 30k speed limit came in? It was as part of a program trial as a COVID-19 response. <laughs> yeah, not kidding. It was to support more active travel and reduce accidents as part of the COVID-19 response in a program trial. It was a met. Hang on, you need to explain that to me. Am I the dumbest in the room? Like, I don't yes, get it. like, it's obvious, David. Move on. Bureaucracy so, was involved. That's the explanation. I don't get it. The measure was met by an avalanche of complaints and became a convenient cash grab for the government. Surprise, surprise. The mayor said that uh, Liverpool's victory, uh, they, they had it overturned. Liverpool's victory in getting rid of this 30k spill limit has saved other councils in Sydney from having similar limits imposed. Absolutely, that's the case. But in exchange for lifting the limit, the state has required the council to install an extra pedestrian barrier. So there you go, an example of political action uh, fighting back against the creeping bureaucracy. Because here in, in Victoria, we currently have, uh, as I said, 30,000 40 zones and 30,000 60 zones, and it's they're about the same. With this, what you're talking about, bureaucracy drive towards zero, it's just going to keep tilting and tilting. There's no, nothing holding them back from uh, Keep, People have to make noise about it, yeah. Yes. Exactly, make noise. The best part of this, of course, is revenue. That's what the state loves. Let me show you the difference between speed cameras in New South Wales and Victoria. New South Wales has three signs. This is what they look like before every camera. 
the people in this room tonight are from Victoria. They might be very jealous and shocked to see these signs. Three signs before every fixed camera. One says, 20, says speed camera, another one says speed camera ahead or 24 hour speed camera. And the last one says he heavy fines, loss of license. So by the time you get to the camera and you get caught, you're a dill. You should have seen the signs. How about Victoria? This is what our fixed cameras look like in Victoria. Yeah. This right. is speed cameras, fixed speed cameras in Victoria. This is on the East Link. Yeah. Does everyone see the speed camera signs, the warnings, or even the speed cameras themselves? They're hiding under the bridge, aren't they? Yeah, on the I'll give you a hand. This is, you've missed it. Let's zoom in and let's see actually, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Can you see the speed cameras now? For those watching at home, there are tiny little caterpillar-like things under the bottom of that bridge there. That is what speed cameras look like in Victoria and all of our New South Wales listeners are spitting out their cereal. How about mobile speed cameras? In New South Wales, you must have three warning signs. These are what the three warning signs look like. You have mobile speed camera ahead, and then a number of meters later, you have the car, which must have a sign on it, either written on the car or sitting on top of the car, which says um, mobile speed camera or what have you. Then lastly, it says, after you pass, it says your speed has been checked. So you know when you've gone past a mobile speed camera in New South Wales. Uh, in fact, this is what New South Wales mobile speed cameras look like on the road. So you're driving along. Five years. And it says mobile speed camera. And you've had the warning signs as well. How about in Victoria? This is what mobile speed cameras look like in Victoria. Isn't that fun? P-plate, yes. These are all actual uh, images of speed cameras. Uh, hiding behind bins, yes. So are we feeling a difference in approach here? It's subtle. <laughs> I bet they slow down at the ones in New South Wales, though. They come from two very distinct, uh, fundamentally different ideologies. So I need to tell you about something called the Panopticon. Uh, Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon is this thought experiment. Jeremy Bentham, uh, unfortunately, pushed this whole idea of utilitarian ethics, the greatest good for the greatest number. Anyway, he had this thought experiment of you could create a jail in a circular uh, round shape, and you put a single guard in the middle. Uh, and instead of having to have a higher ratio of guards to um, uh, detainees, you have one guard in the middle and you surround him with uh, mirrored glass. So no one can see which way the guard is looking, but the guard could be looking at any one of your cells. And if you're doing something naughty, he can, he can punish you, but you don't know when he's looking at you. So every single prisoner in this round complex always feels surveilled. And it was this amazing, uh, uh, thing that utilitarians loved where you could maximize the surveillance effect for the minimum of resources. This was called Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon and this is this is some video of what it looks like. So in Victoria, it's literally, literally the panopticon in the sense that you don't know where these cameras are. They're designed to have you in a state of somewhat, I guess, fear or just, just concern that you're not speeding. And that is what I found, gentlemen, when I moved from Sydney to Melbourne. In Sydney, it was like, don't speed, speeding's bad. I was like, okay, sorry. Here, it's like a month later, ha we caught you three times on the same day, screw you. Mm -hmm. I, I would say though, that lots of people in Victoria 
they're pretty kind people. They flash the lights at you and tell they you. They do that in Sydney too. Yeah, well, that's even more kind, I suppose, because yeah. they, like you said, they might be a dill if they didn't see the, didn't see the sign. But if the objective is to slow people down, surely you want to tell people that they're. Yeah, I mean, I get it under the constant surveillance thing, right? In New in South Australia, they do something different again. Like another problem with the speed cameras that I I think is a problem is that it's an instantaneous effect and you can have like a small slip up over the speed limit and because you're paying attention to the road. So we need point to point cameras. Yeah, well that's what they've got in South Australia and I was quite impressed with that. They're so not they have good, a ten, mate. Because not good you, well, because they track you for the next 20 kilometers and you slip over a little bit at one point, you're screwed. I mean, there are tolerances built in, no, sure. They, they but, take the average over that yeah. period. Yeah, they, they take the average, yeah. yeah so if so, you're averaging like a large sitting way the over the speed limit, limit over, yeah. then you're clearly up, speeding, you're right? You're clearly speeding. It's not just a slip up. You've been speeding the whole way. Yeah. Well, you've been doing 100 the whole way and then you slipped to overtake someone for a moment to 110. Look, either way, mm. that's still a panopticon approach of surveillance over a longer mm. period of time. Now, lest you think it's me going on a philosophical flourish, it's not. Uh, the uh, superintendent, what's his name? Where is it? Uh, I was emailed uh, from Victoria Police. Uh, Chief <laughs> Superintendent of Victoria Police, John Bodiner, emails me and says, Matt, Bad news, we deliberately did this. So John Bodner uh, designed and implemented the speed camera system in Victoria. When he took over, they only had three speed cameras and no red light cameras it's in the 90s. And then he, uh, he, he, he rolled it out. And he said there's two types of approaches to keeping citizens in line. You can have general deterrence or specific deterrence. And in New South Wales, they use specific deterrence, signs, don't speed Ryan. In, in Victoria, they use general deterrence. Don't be naughty because we'll catch you stepping off the path and we'll find you in the, in the parks, mm. this new law, or speeding or what have you. And he said, we deliberately chose the panopticon approach because it produces good results. Does it? The figures, he says, are about the same. To which I say, well, well let's go with the other one. Anyway, that is speed cameras. That is the ideological difference between how we treat speed cameras in uh, Victoria versus New South Wales. I think it's wrong and I feel surveilled. Mm. You're a roads minister. Shadow. Shadow roads minister. I raised this Luke Dinnellan who was roads minister. Doesn't care. He literally said, oh, I don't, I don't. That argument holds no weight with me because deaths are deaths. What do you think? What does he mean by deaths are you deaths? Haven't, you haven't watched the... the no, I haven't had a chance to yet. He just thinks whatever it takes... To slow people down. Yeah. Well, I mean, you said that the... Were you saying the differences between the way the New South Wales operates and how Victoria operates produce the same effects in terms of accidents? He claims, and John Bodenar claims, yes. Well, then, I, you know, it's, it's, then it's about revenue in Victoria, then, isn't it? Oh. If, if the... Nice to hear you say it, that's all. <laughs> so, so, so if you were Rose Minister, though, that, that's something that we could lobby you for and to... you'd. Well, I, I would want to, I mean, I, I, obviously it works in New South Wales, you know, what they're doing works in New South Wales. We're not getting better results with our, we're getting the same, but we're not getting better results. So why would you because, hide, hide what you're doing because most unless people, it was for revenue? Okay, but because most people, not the thinkers in this room, say, you've got nothing to hide if you do nothing wrong. Stop speeding, Matt. These are the comments on my Facebook. Stop speeding and you won't have to fear them. They don't understand that this is all right. abnormal. All right, well, uh, that was a simple segment. Questions on speed cameras? We'll move on. So many, okay, let's hear from some people we haven't heard from. We'll move around the room. Do you love speed cameras, sir? 
probably not. I'm just going to, one observation I made, I have um, used to work in Clayton and, uh, and uh, I worked in Eltham and I, and I went along Blackburn Road, pretty much for the whole length of Blackburn Road. And um, during the school zone, you know, the school zones, there was quite a few schools along there, but there was 40 zones, 50 zones, 60 zones, 70 zones and an 80 zone. There's actually 32 speed changes on the same road. That's it's like, wild. even if you're trying to do the wrong thing, how can you, how can you be aware enough not to get busted? I agree. That's There's, mad. When we were in government between 10, 2010 and 2014, we, there was a, we did institute a review of um, roads that had multiple changes in whatever the criteria was for the, the distance, but we smoothed it out a little bit. I don't think it was enormous. The changes weren't huge, but there was a removal of some of those signs where there was just this chop and change of speed. So I think that has to be done again because those, you're right, I've been road down roads like that. They drive you mad and you don't know what you should be doing. If you happen not to see the speed sign for whatever reason, you find yourself doing the same limit that you were a minute ago. Yeah, and, 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 and another thing, uh, you know, I've been uh, teaching my kids to drive, and they're always asking me, "What speeds this? Uh, what speed am I supposed to be doing?" Because they're very busy, you know. They're not, you know, probably don't get time to see. But there's so many changes; um, you really have to be on top of it, otherwise you'll miss it. Mm -hmm. Sure. Thank you. Uh, I'm familiar with the uh, Oracle Road Speed camera that you were talking mm. about earlier, David, and that's an interesting one because it doesn't even have a single speed limit. It has depends on time of day and day of yes. week. So you've got to fight gravity as you go down the hill, read the instructions about what to figure out what the speed limit is. And it is signed though. They do have a they do have a warning sign. But that's nice. Yeah. 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 So the I, I, I'm not convinced though that uh, that speed limit is set to achieve a safety outcome. If it was, it's highly ineffective. I think it's actually 14 million revenue yeah, per year. Yeah, something like that. That's yeah. a measure of how ineffective it is at reducing traffic speed to the target level. And yet, I, when I drive down there often, I don't see dead bodies everywhere and carnage. <laughs> so uh, I, I really don't think that uh, it's more revenue than safety. Well, someone made the comment to me that they lower it to 40 because um, it's a school zone, right, during certain hours. but. It's a TAFE, like they're adults, they're not kids. Yeah, and, uh, and it's got a traffic light, pedestrian crossing with little green man, yeah, yeah, yeah. all that stuff. So it's, yeah, it's quite, yeah. it's quite extensive um, pedestrian uh, infrastructure. And that's so, right, yeah. it doesn't explain weekends and, and uh, middle of the night and things like that. I, I'd, I'd go with the $14 million revenue explanation myself. It's, it's a lot of money. So, yeah. you know. I'm actually more on the I, side I of your- I think it's ineffective by design. Mm. I'm more on the side of your bureaucratic argument that they're good meaning and they're simply trying to chase it down to zero and it's a horrific um, Bentham's panopticon ideology behind it. Um, a, a quick suggestion for your audience, Matt. I haven't driven anywhere in Victoria for probably over five years without running the Waze app, yeah. W-A-Z-E. So I'm always informed by that app of what the current speed limit is and where there's cameras, whether they're fixed or mobile. See, now this goes directly against the philosophy behind the architect of the system, which was backed up by Monash University studies and their boffins there. Yeah, that's so right, but that fuck the surveillance state. So <laughs> I, I run the Waze app and I warn other Good. people as well. Run it to line. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what I'm concerned about, Ash, is that that goes against the ideology that I've been presenting that is rampant in this state in COVID response everywhere. But we can empower ourselves and fight back. Absolutely, fight back. But yeah, I'm worried that those loopholes like Waze app will eventually be closed or curtailed. No, I think people will find a way. But the, the other point I wanted to make was that um, I, I think that with some of the speed reductions and other things like chicanes and stuff that they put in, I don't think they're actually doing risk reduction. I think they're doing um, risk displacement. Oh, now, yes. I, I got one speeding fine between the age of 18 and 30. I sped all the time. I just did it on back roads and yeah. we used to use those chicanes as a test. My car, I could do it in 75. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In my mate's car, I could do it in 85. Yeah. I was meant to be doing it in, at, at 20. Yeah. So I think that you know, th th there's just this naivety that, that you do this thing and it doesn't have any other effects and, and you just tick the box and you've won. Yes. I just don't think that's the case. One of the measures that John Bodnar told me about, he'll be on December next year, on a long form interview. One of the things he told me about is you must surveil at least 60% of the fleet in Victoria, which he thinks is 4 million cars. I don't know if that's current. Uh, and if you, because you have to maintain the panopticon, you have to maintain a sense of you are being surveilled. So it's actually quite resource intensive to surveil 60%. I'll just give an example of the way the councils think. Um, I used to live on Alma Road, East St Kilda, and the local council, Bayside, wrote to me as a concerned residence and said uh, the current speed limit on Alma Road is 60 k's and we're thinking of reducing it to 50. We've done a proper survey, a mathematical survey of the current speed of all vehicles going up and down Alma Road over the last month and the average speed is 45 k's per hour. Our speed limit's currently 60. Would you object, agree or disagree with us reducing the speed limit to 50? That seems odd. Why? There's no signal to reduce it. They're already... And they'd have to pay for all the signs to be changed when the current speed limit was less than what they were going to legislate. That's ridiculous. For. That's ridiculous. All right. We've uh, got one more and then we'll go on to our final quick section. So the argument is it's for safety. It's not for revenue. That's the argument. So that's the argument. So how about we actually make it like that? Okay, future fund style. All the revenue you get from speed fines gets not into general government review, gets put aside in a special area. How about we, if they change that? Then 100%. We, we actually proposed that. Tim actually brought, proposed that in the last parliament, that all speed fines revenue should go into a fund to reduce registration. Then you've got um, drivers who speed, uh, subsidising drivers who drive They safely. do that in New South and Wales. it's not yeah. a revenue issue. You get a discount if you don't get fines in New South Wales on your licence. I'm not sure about your register. But yeah, exactly. All right, uh, let's go to our final uh, quick section about guilt-free electricity. So Labor in Victoria found great traction promising to bring back the State Electricity Commission. It's too late to be talking about the SEC, if I'm honest. <laughs> anyway, state-owned power. It went so well last time. Let's do it again. Is this crazy? It's crazy because the SEC was in a different time. The states weren't so interconnected with the grid. It's just a different system now. It's just, and there's more renewables and there's more sources of power generation. What the SEC did back in the 90s, it's not fit for purpose now. Well, you know what, it is slightly different. So let's move on quick to the more interesting part. Um, this time the SEC will be 100% renewable. So um, Daddy is going to give us renewable green 
warm, fuzzy electricity, guilt-free. Uh, one thing we never talk about though with renewables is the externalities or the cost of building these kind of, um, the damage caused by producing these renewable technologies like wind farms. So today I thought we'd go on a very short tour of copper, just one metal, one very basic metal. Uh, this is one of the world's biggest copper mines called Kennecott Utah Copper. Uh, and this is just one input you have into wind turbines and solar panels. And I'll show you just a small part of its life cycle and you'll see that it's not so clean after all. There are no solutions, only compromises, as Thomas Sowell says. Civilization's very first metal was copper. Later on we had steel and so on. Uh, but uh, copper is very, very important. Uh, for instance, a three megawatt wind turbine uh, contains up to four to seven tons of copper. So an offshore wind farm will contain uh, over uh, 10 tons per megawatt uh, of power. So a lot, a lot of copper, heaps of copper. So we need to make these massive mines to dig up all this copper to build a wind turbine. They don't tell you about this. Let's have a look at how you dig up these, uh, this copper and what it does to the environment. So copper starts with drilling. Lots and lots and lots of drilling, massive, massive drills. And guess what the drills run on? Solar panels. So <laughs> drills, drills run on a lot. Of, they burn, you know how much they burn? A little bit? No, a lot. These drills are huge. Uh, copy mines have a lot of these drills. They have fleets of drills that run in shifts 24-7. The drills also require tires lubricating oil, grease, dust control systems, all sorts of things going, all petrochemical, all, all oil-based uh, inputs. Now, the, cool, the, the next scary part of this is when they drill into this, this hard rock, they actually use a whole bunch of <clears throat> special bits. These bits are tungsten oxide drill bits. They regularly break. Uh, they're quite rare metals, all made in China basically, but the life cycle of these bits is quite low. Uh, very expensive to dig up and create, again, powered by diesel. Uh, then comes the fun part after drilling is blasting. Blasting, you need to use a whole lot of ammonium nitrate, fuel oil, uh, basically fossil fuels again. 94% uh, uh, ammonium nitrate with diesel fuel oil. That's how you make this explosive the stuff they use on copper mines. Then you blow up the side of the hill. Then of course you need to do something with all of this um, material. The shop material, whether it's useful copper or waste, needs to be loaded into giant haul trucks and moved out of the pit. Again, those trucks are not powered by solar panels, powered by diesel. Uh, each uh, one of, for example, each one of these tires on these trucks weighs 12,000 pounds. So that's about five tons each tire. It's made with 100% petrochemical rubber. Uh, Hundreds of ingredients go into, or fossil energy goes into moving this stuff around the place. Tires are not recyclable and they don't last that long. They have landfills on every copper mine site. Now, I've just run you through about a third of this life cycle to get copper out of the ground. Next, you need to go and take, you need to smelt it, you need to purify it, you need to spin it, you need to do a whole bunch of stuff, all powered by fossil fuels. So by the time you get to a nice, beautiful wind turbine, which is doing nothing bad except killing a bunch of native birds, is uh, you, you're expending a lot of fossil fuel. And I think these externalities, that's just copper. That's just one element, one metal. We don't talk about this stuff because it's not sexy. This is an image from Daniel Andrews' website uh, with an ETU member in front. This is his main image in front of when he said, you know, doing what matters. Look at this beautiful countryside, Nice uh, turbines, ETU, electrical trades union with them. 
this is the image we have of, of sustainable um, SEC. This is what they're, they're trying to say the SEC will be. Uh, this topic is mainly for you, Mr. Actual Minister for Climate Change in the Liberal government from 2014 to 2018? 10 to 14. 2010 to 2014. What is the go here? What is the obsession with climate change uh, in this state? And is it a bit of a farce not taking into account some of this stuff? Well, of course. I mean, I think there's two things the government does. It catastrophizes the problem, because if you don't deal with the problem that they say is a problem, then it's going to be a catastrophe. And they, as we, you and I have discussed this before, this is what the, the left does, is catastrophize issues to the point to make you scared, so you must act. You must do what they say, because the world's going to end otherwise. So that's, that's the first thing they do. And the other thing they do is just simplify everything, dumb everything down with, as you rightly point out, the images that, that they put up, the language they use, you know, you've got to do the right thing, we're doing what matters, you know, mining copper doesn't matter, but putting up a nice image and, and having the turbine go is, is what matters. So that's what they do, they catastrophize an issue and then they give you a very, very dumbed down solution. So now then, what is the hope when earlier in today you mentioned you, sometimes you're wedged and you don't have as much freedom as minor parties to, to go off on a frolic on some policy. Yep. So if you were in now, you would have to bow to some of this pressure, and, and you did, right? The Liberal Party had a policy that was stronger on emissions than the Labor Party. Yes. On, sorry, specifically carbon dioxide emissions. On, yes, on the targets, yes, that's yes. right. Um, but in 2010 to 2014, what I did as Minister is firstly I removed the, the Climate Change Act that said we had to buy basically carbon credits, which would have cost the state about $3.5 billion. So I removed that act. Um, the second thing I did was change Sustainability Victoria's focus from climate change issues to waste management, which is what it was set up for in the first place, now has gone back to being a climate change agency. Um, and the last, no, not the last thing, but one of the things I did was put in the first climate change adaptation plan, which was about practical things to do in the state with regards to protecting public and private property not necessarily from the effects of climate change, but from climatic events. So we have floods, we have, yeah. you know, we can, different people will argue why we have them, we have them. So let's, let's put a protection in. So I took a very practical approach to the portfolio, save money by changing legislation so we don't have to buy carbon credits, putting an agency's focus where it should be and making sure there's practical... But let's look forward. That's so looking nice. forward, yes. What, what so so you asked me, you know, as Minister, what, what I did. Um, looking forward, there's a lot of... You need to be in government to educate people. I mean, the opposition, as we said before, has very little resources. You have to get into government to actually make... to actually educate people about what, you know, things like that you're just talking about there and, and be honest with people and say... We can have the wind turbines if that's what you want, but this is what happens. I mean, we did a survey a couple of terms ago, I think, of you know, how much, what percentage would you add onto your bill for clean energy? You know, how much more are you prepared to pay? And there were boxes like 5%, 10%. The vast majority were no, no more. I do not want to pay any more for my power bills. I don't care what the... That will be the case now as well. Yeah, yeah, so I think that there's a lot of people out there like that. And I think that, I mean, You've got to go, if you're, not into, if you're not in government and have the ability to educate people, then you've got to be very clear to people about what all the ramifications are of taking a particular policy direction, and that's 
not what the government does. But the government has a lot of successes in telling you there's a huge problem and then giving you a very, very, very simple solution. What will the Liberal Party do now going forward? Oh, well, yeah, I, I don't know the answer because we've only just been in a new opposition for a week and a half. So I don't know what we're doing on policy in that, is, is that there a, way. Is there a mood in the party that you need to go more towards the millennial vote, which includes climate change type stuff? Um, Post-election, you mean? Yes. I don't. We haven't had that discussion. We only just got a new leader a week ago, so it's hard to work out who, where, which direction we're going. But having said that, I think the inner city MPs have their view of the world. Yes. And I know that other MPs have a different view. So I guess that's the party room discussion to have. And however that ends up, you know, we'll come out and we'll all support the party room position because that's what you do when you're elected under a party banner. But um, I, I think there'll be a lot more discussion about this particular policy area than there has been for a number of years in our party. Because people like um, Evan Mulholland have their views, James Newbury has his views, you know, Wayne Farnham, our candidate in Narrakan, has his views. You know, but this is my point. James Newbury, um, you know, good on you, mate, well done. Not having a go, but the truth is you say he has his views. I'm not sure. I think a lot of politicians don't actually tell us their views. I think they just say yep. what they need to say to get in. We, there's one thing, there's one, I mean, people talk about major parties, you know, you have to toe the party line and everything. And I, I think that's right in terms of what, how you're presented outside of the room. I've never had a complaint about, from me, 16 years in parliament, of not having the opportunity to put my case to my colleagues. So I think we'll all put our case around this sort of policy to each other for discussion. We'll reach a view that we, as a party, have to take. But you know, as I say, he, he has his views, whether they're driven by um, good policy outcomes or driven by good political outcomes in his seat, you know, that's, uh, or, or a mixture of both. But he'll put his views, I'll put mine, others will put theirs forward. And, but th there will be more discussion about this, I think, than there has been in the past. Okay. There's, there's two issues. La Labor's quite clever what they've done here with the SEC and uh, tying it together with the whole climate change issue. Um, there's a bigger goal that they're trying to achieve here, though, around the SEC. Um, <clears throat> you know, is it, is it necessary to have a government-owned corporation to do this? Well, no, it's not, but Labor will argue it is. Um, essentially, what they're trying to do here is insert this, you know, we have a, a socialist left-dominated government, right? Um, the dictionary definition of socialism is state ownership of the means of production. Um, for a long time, they've been complaining about, you know, privatisation, which is basically the reverse of socialism, right? They blamed all of these problems with electricity on privatisation that happened years ago. But I would say, you know, we've got a state where no one would argue that our energy market is a free market in it's any sense so of the word. Nice. Like, it's hard to think of many markets where the government interferes more, maybe finance and medicine and a couple of others. Mm -hmm. But we've got, what have we done in Victoria? We've, uh, in 83, we uh, prohibited uh, nuclear energy. And uh, later on, we uh, prohibited fracking. Then we stuck, you know, fracking prohibition in the constitution because someone thought that was a good idea. Um, we've got renewable energy targets. We've got brown coal taxes. We've got just about every intervention that you could think of. And then Labor comes out and says, the problem was privatisation. We need public ownership of the means of production, state ownership of the means of production. Socialism is the answer. And we will have, uh, I, don't, I don't use the term renewable anymore. I call it weather dependent energy. Um, and they say, we're gonna set up a corporation 
of weather-dependent energy, and uh, but that's part of that. Like, when you watch the enthusiasm from the Labor MPs about this SEC, they are massively enthusiastic about it, and I don't think it's got anything, hasn't got a lot to do with renewable energy. It's got to do with driving their socialist agenda. That's exactly what they're trying to do. I, I think we have to call it out. Like, this is what they're trying to do. This is, their, this is their beachhead, right? And it's the obvious thing to do is to go for energy because everyone's complaining about it. Energy's really expensive. I would blame the market interventions and restrictions on energy sources as one of the primary causes of it being uh, expensive and uh, a mess right now, but that's what they're doing. Uh, the, the other thing is this um, proposition that it's going to lower your energy bills or keep them low. The proposition is that 49% is going to be owned by the super funds mm. who are legislated to maximise returns for their members. Mm. So if you've got a half owner who's under law has to make as much money out of their investments as possible, how can you say our half owner is going to be right on board with keeping the cost down. Because yeah. that's not what the super funds are there for. But many of these super funds, um, they've got uh, unions are on the boards, so they're yeah. controlled yeah. in many ways by unions. Um, and we have a, a state-owned company that goes into competition with the private sector, a sector because there's lots of renewable energy companies already. It'll be going into competition with the private sector. It's like NBN, similar sort of thing. Sort of like Community Chef, actually. Oh, don't, no, 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 no. But they're going no. into competition with them, and uh, but they also make the rules. Yeah. So they can't lose. It's an awesome investment, right? Because yes. you're, you're going into competition with someone who makes the rules. But I, I think... Um, it's going to have a very negative effect because all of a sudden these companies the, in the private sector now that are putting forward investments, like you're already seeing in the gas sector, you'll yeah. see it in the renewable sector as well. They're going to say, do I really want to go into competition with a company that is controlled by the state? Like, I mean, why would I invest in that market? You're going to get sovereign risk pricing in the market with investments. And that's problematic. Like, that's a big problem. But he would argue he has a mandate to do whatever he wants on this because it was a big it was policy big. front and centre. It was big. Uh, get ready for some final questions, people, before we round out the night. Uh, but the, 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 the swing towards the millennial vote, this is what I'm concerned about. When the power, if, if you're correct, and, and as most libertarians would say, once the state comes in, they wreck everything and prices get out of control and blah, blah, blah. If that happens, do you think everyone, all the young millennials who are coming online as voters over the next you know, four whatever years, the Gen Zs and whatever, do you think they're going to vote for libertarianism when the power bills are through the roof and all that? They're going to vote for more socialism. They're going to look at this and say the government needs to have price controls. Look at when toilet paper went in the supermarket. Nobody was saying, well, this is what surge pricing does. Do you really need toilet paper? Everyone's like, put price controls, put quantity caps. Humans naturally go to a socialist lever. I think if people aren't educated about economics, and that's, that's a big thing that, that we need to do, um, you know, not, not we as a, as a party, but we as people who, you know, understand that, you know, price caps equal shortages, right? Like these iron laws of economics that should be as simple as, you know, gravity. Like um, these people that put forward this they're always talking about you know follow the science and all this sort of stuff but they don't follow the economics like they don't look at these things at all from an economic point of view and I think it's in our interests in and essential that we um, do our best to educate people because I tell you what that a lot of these people are doing a really good job at educating people on you know why 
we should stop using fossil fuels or something like this, right? And, and there's not a lot of the resistance to some of these technologies, like nuclear, for example, I mentioned that before. Young people aren't anti-nuclear. No, they're not. I've spoken to lots of young people who are like, they don't even understand why we oppose it. Exactly. And um, it's, it's the older generation that are anti-nuclear. Young people are like, fine. You know the what we did once in 2019? Before, um, so, uh, I, you might not know this, but I actually organised the first pro-nuclear rally in Australian history oh. in Melbourne in 2019. I was very big on energy policy. I went along to the, um, the uh, climate strikes and sure, all this sure. sort of thing. And we were handing out pro-nuclear yep. leaflets and saying, yep. you know, this is zero carbon energy, you should consider it. Yeah. A lot of people were really interested. Oh, wow. Yeah, a lot of people. I had one guy that tore it up and threw it at me. Yeah, but, but anyway. It's, it's encouraging that Victoria, New South Wales and federal parliaments have all done inquiries and have all come to a similar conclusion, which, yes, this actually needs to be looked at. So without being completely pessimistic about it all, there is a mood change. Yes, that's there is. There, oh, absolutely. Which is good. Absolutely. Really. I mean, the polls say it, but I mean, even the conversations at a federal level with the coalition, I was very happy to hear lots of people talking about it. Yep. Um, look, I just think I'm not even for particular technologies in really. I just think that, you know, we're in an energy hungry world and why would we tie our hands behind our back and um, restrict the technologies that are at our disposal, especially when the technologies that they're pushing these weather dependent uh, energy te technologies are going to make us perpetually dependent on uh, China and these other companies. You know, they keep, these other countries, they keep talking about, you know, cheap renewables. Well, they're cheap because they come from China. They're cheap because the polysilicates in, are made with slave labor in Xinjiang province. Like, you know, we, we have to question like this. And then they say, well, we'll just start making it locally. Well, guess what? It's not cheap anymore. Then, <laughs> this is know? right. This is right. Make your iPhone locally. Can't be done. Uh, let's go to some audience questions before we, we head out. Uh, nuclear is the elephant in the room, isn't it? No, I think we're willing to talk about it. We are. The Greens, they should take the yeah, nuclear, they should grab nuclear. Is it, is it dead? And, and, and call it their own. Yeah. It suits all of their agenda. About 12 months ago, um, 3AW Breakfast Program was running anti-natural gas promotions, uh, funded and written out of Brisbane, uh, that seemed to have no relation to Victoria at all, other than we've banned. Um, well, they were a radio station, so someone paid them to do that. Yeah, but uh, who was behind oh, someone in Brisbane so paying for radio ads in Victoria? I'm not sure. No idea. No one seems to be asking the question why we need so much gas for electricity at the moment. No, they don't care. Well, so it's because coal's... of renewables, because you can't they ramp up coal, coal quickly, but you can yeah. ramp up gas really quick when it's, the yeah. wind's not blowing. Yeah, we're using a lot of gas. Who else? Uh, not really energy related, just a question for you, Matt. Um, discernible has taught me... Um, or opened my eyes to the fact that um, Australians kind of love authority and um, I, I feel like I never really knew my fellow countrymen at all yeah. um, and I can't unsee it now. Um, but I was just wondering, when did you notice um, and um, or, or had you always observed um, th this? I've always observed it, but the, I've been, I'm regularly horrified to like this election. Oh, wow, you know, so many people love being told what to do, which is why I talk a lot about ethics and panopticon because this kind of stuff can help us uh, immunise ourselves, our thinking, uh, against going along with the latest thing. So I interviewed Luke Dinellon, he was the Labor Minister. Uh, he, he was so convincing. I was ready to vote Labor by the end of that interview. 
except I know what his, where his ethics come from and I know where they lead. They lead to organ harvesting in China. That sounds a bit alarmist, but that's the exact same ethic that he deployed in that interview, that the, the doctors and surgeons, and I've interviewed uh, one of them who led um, organ, this long story, um, a, a famous surgeon uh, on this. And he knows about how this organ harvesting started. It's through a utilitarian worldview, where if you can, it's a trolley problem. If you can kill two to save 10, then it's morally justified to kill the two. And I, I think that's horrifying and that's, always been there like you say, just that we couldn't see it. And if we start to see it, we might be able to push back against some of its excesses. Thank you for the question. I just want to pick up on that because that's that's quite interesting. I remember uh, in uh, last year during our dark days, um, uh, a comment that I saw uh, on social media by uh, someone from the States who said uh, that um, it was something to the effect that Australians like freedom, but they don't love it. Uh, that they're not, you know, they, they're happy to sort of be left alone and get, get, get on with their lives, um, you know, on a micro basis. But uh, when their rights are threatened, um, you know, there's, there's, there isn't much of a, a reaction. So it was quite interesting. And that made me, um, during the last election, um, I was um, visiting different booths um, to see what was going on on the ground. And, um, and I was at the... Um, at the booth for um, Strathmore Secondary College, Essendon, and um, there was um, a guy from the Freedom Party there, uh, just on his own, and, um, and he had an opening line. His opening line was, you deserve freedom, right? That was his opening line. You know, he would hand, you know, he would basically uh, push out his, um, his how to vote card and he would say, you deserve freedom. And the number of people who went, ooh, exactly. at that, it, it made me think, you know, like who, who reacts like that to someone who tells you, you deserve freedom? No, I don't, let me, let me just be oppressed. Like, it was just shocking how many people had that kind of reaction to this poor guy. I was just, you know, it Australia, made me think. Like Australians don't know what freedom is. You know that, you, you've seen that, that's the example. They don't know what it is. I, I, I think we're, I don't know, this, this, it sounds like a very pessimistic view, but I mean, no, I'm, just... I, I'm, I'm an optimist. And I think that um, there's a lot of Australians that, uh, you know, you can talk to people. Like, I think we're in a period of flux at the moment. Yes. There's big political shifts, right? We saw it in the election. And this idea that everyone's moving in one direction, I don't think is right at all. I think there's a lot of people questioning things, especially after the last couple of years. You know, we've seen it in, in um, you know, growth in support for our party, but also, you know, other parties and the way people are operating. People are asking questions and people, are, you know, people are uh, watching stuff like this and saying, well, what's really going on here? So I th I'm optimistic that there's, there's a, a kernel that is starting to grow of people that are uh, questioning what the government doing and standing up against it and having the courage to stand up against it. it my, this is my concern and criticism of your party, David. Mm. You're teaching people, well, you're, telling, you're standing up for our freedoms, absolutely critical. When other parties can't or some parties won't, it's, it's critical. But when are you gonna teach us what freedom is? <laughs> because so many people say freedom and, yeah, and then yeah, the freedom yeah. lovers say yeah freedom and then all the normies go what are you talking about no, it's, a fair, it's a fair criticism what is freedom it, yeah and we need to we need to work more on education like i was saying like yeah, yeah. i mean but you know i i the the basic the basic view is around the harm principle right the freedom to act as long as you're not harming other people that's the the basic principle but um freedom you know, and most people agree with that is the other thing. Like hardly anyone would disagree with that. Where they 
find disagreement is where the where the subject becomes more complex. Like where is freedom when we're talking about renewable energy, right? Like it, it's hard to see what's really happening there. Um, Similarly, with the speed cameras, like what we were talking about before, the panopticon versus warning someone, I think what we weren't really considering or we didn't really discuss earlier was um, the, the consent involved or the, the warning that someone gets from seeing it is uh, an increase in freedom because you're reducing the power of the surveillance state, right? You're um, warning someone in advance that something is coming. And so I think... Yeah, we need to uh, educate people in uh, where does freedom lie in these issues because it's sometimes not very obvious. Okay, well, uh, we need to wrap up the night, so let's go to one last question. Uh, and I would challenge, just before you do that, challenge anyone to look deeper into what is freedom and this interplay between freedom and responsibility. Do they go together? Are they, in fact, the same thing? Uh -huh. uh, mine was just on more of the climate alarmism which is being pushed around. Um, the last few years and the fear campaign that's been going on, I see the same thing happening with the climate. Um, as a proud owner of two V8 cars, I don't, I'm not too sure what you're going to do to convince me to tell me that paying more taxes to a government to fix the weather pattern mm. is going to change my mind whatsoever. Um, believing the government's going to get rid of an invisible virus, for one, I think was mentally unwell. And I think if, if you think I'm going to believe that the government paying more taxes is going to fix the weather, I'm ev I must be crazy. That's, that's just, I want to know what's going to change my opinion to get rid of my V8s. That's just me. Yeah, well, I'm a fan of old cars myself, um, having had a few EHs and a 67 Mustang. Wow. Um, so I don't see how getting rid of those cars was going to help too much either. But I go back to what I said earlier when I was minister, you know, $3.5 billion towards um, carbon credits did not seem a very good, sensible use of taxpayers' money, so I ditched it. Great. You might, like Beyond, you might like Bjorn Lomberg, have you heard of him? Yes. Professor from Copenhagen. He founded the Copenhagen Institute. He, he basically is very much believes in anthropological man-made global warming, but he says it's crazy to kneecap ourselves to try and stop this temperature rise, and he talks about adaptation and all this kind of stuff. So you might, you might enjoy him. Yeah, I think Australia, I mean, in many ways, we're overstating our role in the world. Yes. Like, we, we are a tiny proportion of global carbon emissions. Anything that we do is nothing more than a rounding error, even if we shut down the entire economy, right? Um, so Per this, capita, we're very high. Per capita, we're high. But like, in the scheme of things, like, you know, what we do compared to what, you know, China or America does, or, or, it's almost irrelevant. We're just, oh, oh sorry. <laughs> or a volcano. Or a volcano, right? Like, we're, we're just this tiny little thing in the scheme of things and we're overstating it and making these claims as if us sticking wind turbines out in Gippsland or something is going to change the weather, like is going to save the world. It's totally not. Um, and in many ways, I would say if we really wanted to have an impact on the rest of the world, um, it would be through what, what they're really trying to do is send a signal, right? This is virtue signaling yes. at a national yes. level, yes. right? We're saying we're good people because we're doing our yeah. part. If we really wanted to send a signal to the rest of the world, change our position on nuclear. Like that will have a massive global effect. Everyone in the world will notice that Australia that used to be anti-nuclear for so long has all of a sudden changed their position. Uh, maybe that would have a bigger effect on anything. I don't know, like, but we need to look at, you know, where we fit in the world and do we want to handicap ourselves to signal to the rest of the world that we're nice people. If any climate change activist just says you're crazy for talking about nuclear, they're a fraud. 
Thank you for joining us, everyone who's online watching. Uh, if you haven't got one of these boxes yet, handmade by myself and my daughter Coco, get one of these. It's a time capsule of the best interviews in Discernibles catalog. Get them at teamhuman.au. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. I uh, appreciate you being here today and being so open, staying so long. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure me. having you. Before we go, everyone, we have uh, found a video of what I will be doing from tomorrow onwards. This is our last engagement of the year, and we've discovered some security footage of what Matt will be doing. <laughs> <laughs> chill cat. How does that even happen? So I invite you all to join me in a very fun family love filled Christmas doing whatever it is you love to do. Thank you lastly to the probably the most important people in the room is the audience. Thank you for coming out here. You could have gone to Q&A for free and been part of their audience but instead you paid $30 to be here tonight. So thank you for being here. And with that, we bid you good night. The People's Treasure will be back in 2023 to talk about who knows what, but we'll have fun doing it. Good night. Thank you.